Let's go up to the house of the Lord and praise Him there. Let's go up together and His life to share. Let's go. I want to talk about how Lazarus can help us. Maybe not the Lazarus you were thinking about, uh, and maybe not in the same way that you uh, thought. But let me read out of Luke chapter 16, uh, starting with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, different Lazarus than the one in John chapter 11 that was raised from the dead. And he was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the dogs were more compassionate than the rich man. The time came, and by the way, when you're in the New Testament, when we're talking about dogs, it's, you're not, it's not like your pet Muffy, you know, that... Uh, eat steak off of your plate. These are street dogs that are not anybody's pets. Verse 22 says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. The King James says, uh, a great gulf fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Um, the gospel of Luke is sort of the gospel to the poor, gospel about the widows and orphans, and it has more, uh, uh, he included more in his narrative than the other gospel writers did about the marginalized and the vulnerable, and the lepers and the, and the blind. And uh, in this gospel of Luke, the gospel of the poor, comes this parable. I think it's a parable, by the way. Some people consider it a uh, an actual account of something that Jesus saw or knew about in Hades. I'm not inclined to think that, but it, the, the lessons that we derive from it aren't dependent upon whether or not it's actually, you know, an actual story or a parable. 
But when I've taught on this before, you know, I've taught on the standards, the conscious existence after death. You know, there's things that we have uh, proof texts that we have for various things. And I still believe in the conscious existence uh, after death, but I hadn't really thought about an unconscious way of, you know, way of existence with our riches in this life. And then there's the great gulf fixed, but I never really saw the gold gate uh, that he hid behind and insulated himself, this rich man did, from the realities of poverty. And I noticed at the beginning of the chapter, it starts with, there was a rich man. And then this parable in verse 19 starts with, there was a rich man. So there's got to be a connection. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear to me. Uh, between these two parables, Jesus is talking about monetary things and greed and, and how we deal with the material in this world. And then in, right in the middle of the chapter, in verses 14 and 15, it says, the Pharisees who loved money, this is Luke's comment, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So these guys that were in the crowd uh, didn't like what Jesus said, primarily because of their greed. They loved money. They loved the material. And he said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. In verse 15, he says, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. I mean, that's pretty strong language. Yeah, I mean, he's what's highly valued. What we think of in this world uh, as good, God thinks is foul and detestable. And that's the kind of the context for this, this parable. And I, I want to talk about how Lazarus can help us. This guy, this poor guy, Lazarus, uh, who was, his sores were licked by dogs and he begged for the crumbs off of a rich guy's table, how he can help us. And first of all, uh, we'll talk about how we can help us get free from mammon. You know, uh, a while back, actually it was about 10 years ago, uh, I discovered a, a, a uh, website that's called globalrichlist.com. And you can plug in your income and your assets and and discover how where you fit into the you know the global economy and i discovered that day that i was the 63rd millionth 497,000th 897th richest person in the world which put me in the top 5% this was before the occupy movement and the 99% and the 1% talk about that I was shamed, really, by the fact that uh, I was the 63 millionth and a half and change uh, richest person in the world. I mean, our concept of riches and poverty, I think, in our country is just way off base. I heard a story about a little kid that was 
so poor he didn't even have a pair of shoes. It was in New York City. I understand this is a true story. He was standing, looking longingly into the window of a shoe store, praying for shoes. Oh, God, please, may I have a pair of shoes? And a wealthy woman in a mink coat saw him there, took him by the hand and took him into the shoe store, asked the clerk for a pan of water and a towel. And she washed the little boy's feet. Then she bought him some socks and put a pair of socks on his feet and bought him a pair of shoes and tied them up there and patted him on the head and she was leaving the store and the little boy said, stop, are you God's wife? When I read that first, I, I, I cried. Are you God's wife? You know what the answer to that question is? Yeah, yeah, we are. We're God's, we're God's wife. We're the bride of Christ, yeah? And I think this story about Lazarus uh, gives us some context for how we can... Um, relate to the poor. So the first thing he can do is, uh, Lazarus can do is help us get free from mammon. Help us get free from serving mammon. In verse 13, Jesus said in this same chapter, just before the verse I just read in verse 14, he said, you can't serve God and money. Now, NIV says money, it's capitalized. Money is capitalized. And I think that's because they took the the translators of the New International Version took the Aramaic translation from this. You know, Jesus and his uh, and his disciples and the, the the Jews of Jesus' day spoke Aramaic, and the Gospels he probably gave all his teachings in Aramaic, and some of his uh, words, some of the key terms in Jesus' teaching. Uh, in Aramaic became, uh, survived the translation even into the Greek. And like, for instance, Abba, Father Abba is a, an Aramaic term. Um, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani is another one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this one, Mammon, King James and other versions say, you can't serve God in Mammon. And Mammon was the Chaldeans' uh, money god, the name of the money god of the Chaldeans. It isn't just money, it's a spirit behind a greedy hunger for more of it that Jesus is talking about here. It's a, it's a spirit that captivates and controls its subjects. So he's saying that Lazarus was the rich man's opportunity to starve mammon by feeding him. So if the rich guy had reached out to Lazarus, mammon would have lost, gradually lost control of his life. So we need Lazarus as much as he needs us, and maybe even more. It's ironic, isn't it, that um, the rich guy said, send Lazarus to my brothers, my five brothers. And it's almost as though you can hear Jesus saying, well, I already sent Lazarus to you. 
and you didn't listen. He was a gift to you. He could have helped you gotten, get free from mammon. So it's God that sends the needy to the rich and the rich to the needy. It's a symbiotic relationship. We need each other. Jesus told another rich guy, you remember the rich young ruler. He told him if he wanted to inherit eternal life, he should uh, sell everything he had and give the money to the poor. And it's as though he's saying the poor, if he had been willing, would have been a huge blessing to him. They would have been a blessing to him by being there to relieve him of his greed. In this parable, he speaks of a great gulf, but nobody ever talks about the gold gate. I say gold gate because the gate in the the Greek term here is an opulent gate, not just a chain link fence gate, but an opulent uh, golden type gate that he had in this life that led to the, the gold gate led in this life to the great gulf in the next. He always had something in between him and Lazarus that kept them apart. One was his choice and the other one was not. One was, uh, could you could open it and you could decimate it. You could, you could get through it. it. You could get rid of it. The other gulf, the other gulf or the other uh, barrier between them was a great gulf fixed, like Jesus said. So he had you know, walled himself in, insulated himself and protected himself from all the unpleasantness, you know, of the street. Uh, So he had ignored the poor, constructed a gate to keep them out of his consciousness, and the gate he erected kind of led to the gulf. Our mammon addiction can be overcome with Lazarus' help. He sends us Lazaruses, or would that be Lazari? I don't know, but he sends the poor and the marginalized to us uh, to help us to overcome our mammon addiction. He says to the rich guy, he says, you, you have your good things in this life. You had your good things and Lazarus has bad things. And I, I just say to us, you know, we may have our good things, but they're not ours to keep. Paul said, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands that thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. In other words, we don't just have what we have in order to have for ourselves so that we can pay our own rent. So sometimes we need Lazarus more than he needs us. He can help us get free from from mammon. He can also help us make poverty personal. He can make poverty personal for us. We know a lot about poverty as modern Americans, but we we don't know any poor people. A lot of people don't. I heard somebody say that some years ago, and that so struck me. It first offended me. I thought, no way, I know poor people. And then I started to name them and started to count them. And I realized none of the poor, none of the people that I was considering poor we're actually poor. And uh, we, you know, poverty, the concept of poverty is so impersonal. Mother Teresa said it's fashionable to talk about the poor. Unfortunately, it's not 
as fashionable to talk to the poor. And I noticed that Jesus in this parable gives the poor man a name. It's not not common. He doesn't give names to anybody else in any of the rest of the parables. That's why some people think this isn't a parable uh, because he has a name for this guy. But it's pretty clear to me, at least, that it is a, a, a parable and Jesus intentionally gave him a name to say to us, poor people have names too. He gives a name to the beggar, but not to the big shot. The big shot, the the rich guy, uh, doesn't get a name. Now, in church history, in the Middle Ages, uh, they just couldn't resist this rich guy not having a name. So they couldn't resist giving him a name. So they called him Dives. Dives in Latin just means rich man. But to them and to really to everybody else in our culture, rich people deserve names. Poor people don't. Uh, a while back, a a wealthy uh, actor named Philip Hoffman died of an overdose of heroin. And a blog that I follow uh, gave a great epitaph of his life and told, you know, like spoke to him, we're sorry that this happened, we're sorry that you, you know, you had a great career, we're sorry that you had to turn to drugs and you know, we appreciate your contribution and this and that. And I I agreed with everything that the blogger said, but what offended me or what hurt me, what bothered me was that I know that a hundred people a day die of overdoses in America. And so I never do this and write back any kind of pushback on anybody else's blog. Well, almost never. (laughs) But in this case, I I just felt I had to. And I said, thank you very much. It was a beautiful epitaph. And I I loved what you said. Everything you said was fine. But what about the other 99 that died of overdoses in gutters and in slum hotel rooms and, uh, you know, in parks and in rivers and they find their bodies washed up in the, you know, on the beach and what about all those people? They deserve an epitaph as well. Um, Jesus gives the poor guy the the name, but not the but not the the wealthy guy. I was in the Tenderloin of San Francisco recently. I participate in a ministry there. It's the it's the worst neighborhood in the in the city, and and people die of overdoses often there. People are shot and stabbed. And we do a ministry right on the sidewalk. We It is so foul there. We bring a shovel, and I don't mean to shovel things, stuff that comes out of dogs. But uh, we're trying to clean up a little bit because we're bringing food, and we preach, and we have worship, and we love on people and make friends there in our friendship quest and the TL. And I met a woman uh, named Diana who, whose head was all crushed in from a former injury, and uh, but she was crying, and I thought maybe she was in pain, and I approached her, and I said, how are you, what's going on? And she said that her boyfriend uh, was uh, died uh, the day before, and I said, oh, really, how did he die? She said he drank himself to death. He died of cirrhosis. How old was he? 44. What was his name? His name was Dave. 
And I, I mean, those were just natural questions. I would ask, what was his name? Because he's not just another guy that died of cirrhosis, not another guy that OD'd on an inebriant, uh, another, you know, homeless guy, but, but a person that God loved. He deserved to have a name. And it's too help, it's too late, you know, to help him, but he deserves a name. It's ironic to me that everybody knows the names Bill Gates, uh, Sandra Bullock, people that they'll never see except on a screen, but the person that they see every day on a corner or holding a sign, you know, will work for food or whatever, somehow don't get the same consideration to even get a name. You know, Lazarus means uh, God is my help. So he wasn't helped by people, but he was helped by God in his life. He wasn't just the poor guy that sleeps under a bridge. There's a couple of homeless guys that sleep in the doorway of the church next door to my apartment building, and I've befriended them both. I know one of their names. Uh, but I don't know the other one. Uh, we've I've had conversations with the first one whose name I know, but I haven't had many conversations with the other one. And that is because my first approach to him, I realized he was deaf. And I never have a piece of paper and a pen to write, you know, to have a kind of a conversation on paper since I don't know sign language. But I want to know his name because he deserves to have a name. A name, you know, it dignifies us. It distinguishes us, it humanizes us. We give our animals names, but to the poor beggar or the panhandler, we just don't give them names. Think of how it would have dignified Lazarus, even if the rich man never gave him anything and he just stepped over him on his way out to go spend his money and greeted him by his name. How that would have at least had a sense of dignity and lent a sense of dignity to him. Lazarus can help make poverty personal. And Lazarus can help us, thirdly, see Jesus. He can help us see Jesus. Jesus taught on a number of occasions that the rich are at a spiritual disadvantage. He said, Woe to you who are rich in Luke 6. He said to the uh, rich young ruler, it's, or to about the rich young ruler, to the disciples, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, uh, it's, you want to know how hard it is? It's like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. So it's because the rich are at a spiritual disadvantage, one way that he remedies that is to give us opportunities to know and to love and to serve the poor. Back to the rich young ruler that says, you know, sell your everything you have, give your money to the poor. He, I don't think he was just because he needed to get rid of his riches. I think he needed to get close enough to the poor to see Jesus in their eyes, to see God, to see God's love, to see God looking back. Maybe it had less to do with the help that the poor would get and more to do with the help he would get from the poor. 
Jesus taught another parable in Matthew 25, where he said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And you know this parable. And in the parable, the righteous answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink, etc.? And the king replies, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And this was kind of a a life verse, a life passage for Mother Teresa. In fact, she always taught on this passage. And, and, and when she was discipling her sisters and her colleagues, she would hold her one hand up and each finger represented a word. You did it for me. Each finger reminded them her hand and the fingers on her hand reminded them you're doing this for Christ. But she used to say that uh, you're serving Christ in the distressing disguise of the poor. Like Jesus is disguised in the poor person's body. And so when you're looking at them, you're looking at Jesus. And then she would say, we take Jesus from the altar to meet Jesus in the streets. She was teaching that you, when we touch the poor, we're touching Jesus. And one of her sisters went out after having heard that a a man had fallen into a drain and she went and cleaned him up from his wounds and the maggots that were all over him and and spent time with him and went back to Mother Teresa and said, Mother, I've been touching the body of Christ. So in other words, I came to you in the person they tossed in front of your house every day. I was in Lazarus, but the state of your heart was revealed by the way that you treated me in him. My Wiggett's free translation of this is goes like this. I was hungry, and instead of stuffing yourself to obesity, you bought me lunch. I was thirsty, and you quit buying sparking, sparkling mineral water and dug clean water wells in my community. I was a stranger, and instead of having me deported, you got to know me and realized that I left my country to make enough money to spend or to send some home uh, to my starving family. I needed clothes, and instead of buying more shoes to add to your grand collection, you took me shopping for my first pair of new jeans. I was sick, and instead of pointing out the behaviors that led to my sickness, you took me to the doctor and paid my bill. I was in prison, and you didn't say I was getting what I deserved, but you befriended me on visiting days and helped me find a job when I got out. You know, if you want to see Jesus, I'm saying find a poor person, look him in the eye, ask him his name, and serve him somehow. Lazarus can help us see Jesus. And lastly, Lazarus can help us show people what Jesus is like. Because that's what we want to do, right? We want to show other people what Jesus is like. Lazarus can help us witness. Lazarus could have helped the rich man witnessed to his brothers that he was so concerned about after he'd already gone to hell. He was afraid that they would go to hell too, so he wanted God to send Lazarus back, raised from the dead, 
to warn them about the eternal state. But it's it's miracles don't produce faith anyway. They they might ignite it, they might create a spark of interest, but the problem that we have is volitional, not intellectual. So miracles don't uh, bring anybody to, to conversion. But what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Now, that's an effective form of testimony, a more effective witness than miracles. Remember, another Lazarus was raised from the dead, and they didn't. it didn't bring revival. But by the way that we treat the Lazaruses in our lives is one of our greatest testimonies. The rich guy in the parable had a daily opportunity, you know, to be witnessing to his five brothers. Not only was he responsible to love and to serve Lazarus, but he was responsible to do it in front of his brothers in order to set an example for them. But the reason he was worried about them is that he didn't do that, and they turned out just like he like him. And now they live behind the golden gate. They got his, you know, got all his money and couldn't care less about the Lazarus that's in front of their gold gate. He set an example for his brothers, for sure, but it was a bad one. And now, is this ironic? He he wants the guy that he neglected in front of them to go tell them for him. Wow. Lazarus can help us show Jesus to other people by the way that we treat them. So he can free us from mammon. He can make poverty personal. He can help us see Jesus and he can help us show Jesus to other people. Do you want to be freed from mammon? Do you want to be, you want to make poverty personal, see Jesus and show Jesus to other people? Maybe the more operative question would be, will you? <laughs> You're God's wife. We're God's wife. We're the, we're the bride of Christ. We're the answer. You are the answer to someone's prayers, and they're the answer to yours.